Hier komen we in vreemd. Red Flag Radio, the socialist podcast where we talk about theory, history and the news from a revolutionary perspective. I'm Chloe Rafferty. And I'm Emma Norton. Today we're talking about Australia's racist refugee policies and the war on Gaza. So we're recording this podcast on Aboriginal land, the land of the Gadigal people. Sovereignty was never ceded. Later in this episode, I spoke to Daniel Taylor. Daniel's a Jewish socialist who writes regularly for Red Flag newspaper, and he's recently written on the appalling role of journalists across the Western world who have been doing some really heavy lifting justifying Israel's genocide in Gaza. But first, we wanted to talk about one of the big issues in Australian politics uh, in the last few weeks, which has been the uh, NZYQ case. This is uh, the High Court um, case, uh, which recently overturned a uh, terrible decades-long precedent of indefinitely detaining refugees um, who have no prospect of being deported. Uh, And this has really unleashed a racist brouhaha in the Australian media and in the parliament, which really feels like we've just turned the clock back to 2001 or 2013, uh, when refugee bashing was really at the centre of Australian politics. Yeah, our listeners might have been following this case. So in November, a stateless Rohingya refugee won a case in the High Court to outlaw his indefinite detention. And that move overturned the 2004 legal precedent, which said that it was legal to um, detain asylum seekers indefinitely in Australia if they were denied asylum, but were also not able to be deported to their country of origin due to fears for their safety. In other words, it was okay to just imprison people forever without charge or trial or prospect of release so long as they were asylum seekers. Um, so this despicable principle, which the, the the High Court just overturned, was a central piece of legislation behind Australia's inhumane border policies. It allowed the government to keep thousands of people in limbo, locked up indefinitely, denying them asylum in Australia, while basically acknowledging the impossibility of sending them home to the threat of violence and persecution. The November High Court decision which overturned this triggered a massive racist backlash after the government had to release over 140 people who were being similarly detained. The past few weeks saw another race to the bottom between the Labor government and the Liberal opposition over who can be more hardline in their opposition to refugees. Yeah, and after a few years where this question has been much less central in Australian politics, We've now seen a real return of law and order rhetoric and uh, racist stereotypes about refugees and particularly uh, Muslim refugees. Um, And several of the cases of refugees released from detention, including people um, who had served time for criminal offences. And Labor are now racing to pass through Parliament a new set of draconian laws, which would allow the government to once again lock up many of the refugees they were forced to release. Um, These are preventative detention laws Um, would allow the government to lock people up for up to three years without them even committing a crime, just on the pretext that they could potentially re-offend. And it's worth saying, like, people who commit violent crimes are released from jail every day. That's called serving your time. So these are deeply authoritarian laws, which most people would find totally unacceptable if they were not being applied to asylum seekers. Uh, And the debate in Parliament has been a real return to the darkest days of Australian politics, Uh, Dutton uh, painting uh, refugees as murderers, pedophiles and potential terrorists and the Labor Party responding uh, by saying that Dutton as immigration minister failed to keep these refugees locked up. 
Yeah, on top of this, Labor are attempting to give judges the power to strip dual citizens of their Australian citizenship if they are judged to have repudiated, quote-unquote, Australian values. And this is the kind of authoritarian attack on civil liberties that, in Europe, much of the far-right dream of implementing. But it fits well with Labor's track record. At many of the key moments when Australian immigration policy has lurched to the right, Labor have been there in government implementing draconian policies. So we wanted to talk a bit about some of that history and how it fits within the logic of Australian capitalism. Yeah, this was a big issue which politicised me, and I know that's the same for you, Emma. I was a teenager in the late Howard era and went to some of my first protests uh, in the early Rudd era um, about the system of mandatory detention. Um, And when Rudd proclaimed that no refugee who arrived in Australia by boat would ever be resettled in Australia, uh, there were really big protests um, against it all across Australia. Uh, But before Rudd, this was central to the Howard um, government's policies, uh, demonising refugees or what uh, Howard and the right often called boat people. Um, And one of Howard's famous statements um, was, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And this was a real uh, slogan of the conservative right. Uh, And the circumstances that Howard was initially talking about was the Tampa affair. Um, This was a big moment in Australian politics uh, when a Norwegian ship rescued 433 Hazara refugees fleeing from Afghanistan. Uh, Their boat capsized on the way to seeking refuge in Australia. And John Howard sparked an international diplomatic incident when he refused to let Tampa uh, the boat uh, into Australian waters uh, and boarded the ship uh, by the Australian uh, Navy. And this was one of the political moments that the right really built on to whip up a racist opposition to refugees. This was several weeks after 9-11 and it led to, you know, the political climate, um, which led to the opening up of Australian-run detention centres in Nauru. And along with Tampa, there was the children overboard incident in 2001. And this was another sinking refugee boat, which this immigration minister claimed refugees were deliberately throwing their children overboard from to blackmail the Australian government into rescuing them. This kind of sickening racism is always used to justify inhumane policies. They don't care about their children. You know, we hear the same thing from Israel today about Palestinians, you know, faking the, um, their children's deaths in order to uh, gain sympathy. And this happened just before the 2001 election, which saw Howard return to government. In response to losing, the Labor Party moved even further to the right on the question of refugees. But don't think that Labor were just tailing the Liberals the whole time. It was Paul Keating who first implemented mandatory detention periods for all asylum seekers. And at various times, Labor have been really on the cutting edge of cruelty towards refugees in an attempt to prove themselves the hardliners. Yeah, this is the classic dynamic we have seen in Australian politics, particularly on the question of racism towards refugees and migrants. So the Labor Party don't necessarily spark the debate or initially drive the racist policy, uh, but in response to the Liberals and media controversies, they adopt most of the rights demands, if not all of them, and shift further and further to the right. Uh, And it's because they're a party of Australian capitalism. They want what's good for big business. They have no program, not even a modest social democratic program to offer Australian workers. Um, And they only really defend migration on the basis that it's good for the Australian economy, never on the basis of social solidarity, you know, workers' rights to freedom of movement. Um, And also they accept the framework of Australian imperialism and are the ones that are often implementing it. So particularly in this century, that's come with all of the Islamophobia that's been used to justify the war on terror. And they accept the idea that when there is a cost of living crisis, like the one that we're living through now, it's better to blame migration than it is to blame the bosses. Yeah, you really saw this during the Rudd and Gillard years. 
For example, in 2013, Rudd declared, quote, if you come by boat, you will not be settled in Australia. And this was basically a massive ad campaign, which was all over Australian television and radio, which shows how much this slogan was concocted for a domestic audience, I think. Um, but billboards were also put up in Afghanistan, in Sri Lanka. Um, and this was, you know, in Sri Lanka during the genocide against the Tamils, there were big billboards telling people they could not come to Australia. It's just atrocious. And this hardcore racist campaign also went along with opening up new offshore detention centres on Manus Island in Papua New Guinea. Really, that term offshore detention centre is a government euphemism. What these things were was were prisons on remote islands deliberately set up in third-party countries, you know, poor countries like PNG with records of human rights abuses. Um, and it was basically to send a message that Australia owes no asylum and no refuge to anyone, no human rights uh, to these refugees. Basically, these prisons were designed to torture people, to ground them down, to extinguish all hope that they would be accepted for asylum in Australia and to push them to eventually move back to the place that they had fled from. Often people had fled, you know, really horrendous violence, persecution and racism um, in the places that they'd fled from. So that's basically the open rationale, the declared rationale of these detention centres was to make people's conditions so horrific that it was, never, it was better to never try to flee a war zone, to flee genocide and so on. One of the survivors of the Manus Island regime is Beirut Bouchani, who uh, wrote a wonderful book called No Friend But the Mountains. And he was held twice for several days in the notorious Chalker solitary confinement block within the Manus Detention Centre. There he said he was beaten and tortured by um, people, you know, employed in the detention system. And at one point he was jailed there for eight days in solitary confinement for reporting, because he was a journalist, on a hunger strike within the centre that was put down by force by PNG police. And there's just a litany of other horror stories from those years um, in Manus Island, people who were stabbed, lots of suicides um, and just general deprivation. One of the, the things that I really remember is um, the lack of medical care that the detainees got. And so some people just died of very preventable illnesses. One man um, committed suicide because he didn't want to die of his um, uh blood disease that he that he wasn't re you know receiving any treatment for so really horrendous um stuff that is you know on the will be on the Australian conscience forever yeah just absolutely appalling conditions and so many people's lives lost and destroyed um in the process of this this detention regime um I think it's really worth talking about why anti-refugee racism has been so central to Australian politics for so long um, socialists have argued that this kind of racism is part and parcel of modern capitalism. And that can be hard for people to wrap their heads around because capitalists don't really make money out of this. Well, some individual capitalists do, the private security firms uh, who run immigration prisons do. Uh, but that's not really, I think, an explanation for why this persists. Actually, it costs the Australian government a huge amount of money. Um, if you remember the Tamil refugee family who were finally released after the Home to Billow campaign, uh, their two kids who, you know, were actually born in Australia, the family of four uh, were locked up in uh, detention centres um, in Christmas Island in Melbourne. It actually cost $2.5 million uh, to, you know, imprison and torture uh, this family just for a few months. Yeah, so it's not some direct question of profitability. Racism like this serves a more ideological function. I think a big part of it is undermining a sense of social solidarity and obviously class solidarity amongst Australian workers. 
Not everyone took up anti-refugee racism, of course, and actually rich Liberal Party voters certainly did more than workers. But obviously, if you can inculcate people into accepting the heinous treatment of asylum seekers, it has a really conservatising impact on society. Yeah, it's also been a key issue of distract and divide, you know, distract people from the key class questions of society, the rising cost of rent, of mortgage repayments, stagnating wages, and divide people based on racism. So anti-refugee racism also spills over into overall hostility towards migrants, particularly racism towards black and brown migrants. And also particularly in Australia where the capitalist class actually want want or have until recently wanted a high level of migration uh, because they need labour. So attacking refugees is a way of having your cake and eating it too. You get to go on about, um, you know, people coming here and taking our jobs or whatever, but you don't actually have to cut net migration, which is good for the capitalists on their own terms. They get to exploit uh, people on highly restrictive visas. They get um, people who are skilled, who they haven't actually had to train in Australia and so on. Um, So migration is actually good, but they do want to turn the screws on uh, migrants and use this issue uh, politically. So refugees are the perfect uh, scapegoat if you want to do that. Yeah, it's that idea that it's okay if you um, if you come here uh, and are meeting the needs of capitalism, um, you're, if you're a highly skilled uh, professional migrant, or if you've come here as a seasonal fruit picker on one of the you know dodgy four five seven visa schemes, which is basically tied to your boss. Um, but refugees is the way of um, you know asserting that uh, you know freedom of movement is not a right that workers internationally have. Uh, it's something that can only be beholden to you know if it's profitable for the bosses if you're exploitable. Yeah, and I think that anti-Palestinian racism at the moment is a real reminder that a lot of this racism is connected to the priorities of Western imperialism as well. So in the early 2000s to today, some of the key refugees trying to flee to safety have been fleeing America's wars and other conflicts in the Middle East that are the product of imperialism. You know, refugees from Afghanistan, Iraq and Syria, and these people have been particularly hated by the right, you know, demonised as terrorists and attacked for their religion. That kind of racism, particularly Islamophobia, has helped to build up a set of really authoritarian laws in Australia, you know, most of all targeted at migrants and refugees, but also, you know, targeted at the whole uh, population. So against whistleblowers, against civil liberties more broadly, you know, Australia's version of the Patriot Act, actually, um, you know, just as uh, authoritarian um, as the American ones that were passed uh, during the war on terror. Um, Yeah, and I think just the backdrop of this Islamophobia has really been, as you said, like justification for the invasion or occupation of Afghanistan, of Iraq, and now particularly support for Israel. And these questions had been starting to fade in Australian politics, I guess, like, you know, when Chloe, when you and I got involved in politics, this was like what we spent most of our time doing was running around exposing the horrors in the detention centres and campaigning for refugee rights. Um, You can't really say that about the last few years. Um, But I don't think it's like for a good reason, particularly. Partly it's because Labor and the Liberals have had such identical right-wing policies and partly it's because boat turnbacks and mandatory detention have been so successful. You know, the right have basically won all their demands and there was little room for the Liberals to whip up a fear-mongering campaign um, during their Uh, their government. But it's really returned in the last couple of months. This time it's targeting both refugees and formal migration. In some ways it has the potential to be more dangerous in the new context of the rise of a global far right. Yeah, we were talking uh, last episode about the election of Geert Wilders uh, and a whole cohort of far right and even fascist politicians in Europe. 
Uh, and their central fixation has been on stopping refugees from the Middle East um, and fighting the so-called Islamization of Europe. So really vicious racism that promotes the clash of civilizations view of Western Enlightenment, supposed, versus the so-called backwards Middle East. Uh, and we've seen in the last you know, decades uh, the creation of Fortress Europe, the violent policing of European borders, uh, you know, allowing refugees to drown at sea, even far-right uh, attacks on refugee boats in the Mediterranean, uh, and even the criminalisation of basic acts of solidarity with undocumented asylum seekers. So, you know, I've seen, like, farmers who have given refugees a lift or, like, let them sleep in their barns, um, you know, uh, persecuted as um, people smugglers for daring to give just, you know, basic acts of humanity. So this global ramping up of racist policies towards refugees and migrants is the backdrop to this now, you know, returning to the foreground of Australian politics today. I mean, it's worth saying, like, some of the policies that Australia implemented, like, a decade ago are now being taken up uh, elsewhere, in, especially in Europe, um, in the UK in particular. So Rishi Sunak, who's the um, UK Prime Minister, has just passed a bill through Parliament uh, literally in the last couple of days to declare Rwanda safe enough to deport refugees there. Using the Australia-inspired Stop the Boats slogan, the UK government plans to deport everyone who arrives by boat to a third-party country, namely Rwanda, instead of actually processing their asylum claims in the UK. But, you know, this is worth, it's worth saying, like, this is a Tory government that has overseen a decade of austerity and now presides over a cost of living crisis. But as it has no intention of rectifying that through, you know, any attacks on bosses, you know, it doesn't want to tax the rich or uh, spend more on social spending and public housing and that sort of thing. Instead, it's this government spends all its time attacking refugees and migrants who provide a convenient scapegoat. And I think this is really true in Australia, like what makes the anti-refugee and anti-migrant racism today potentially uh, worse and deeper uh, than even in the two early 2000s is the cost of living crisis we're going through now. So uh, the right are blaming uh, migration for the housing crisis, for wage stagnation, uh, basically deflecting blame from all of the profiteering of the bosses and landlords. And I think that this can have a deeper resonance, this kind of populist uh, right um, argument because this is a real crisis. It has nothing to do with refugees and migrants, but that argument can seem plausible, particularly when every media outlet and politician is saying it ad nauseum. Um, and now for the first time this century, both of the major political parties are not just attacking refugees, but actually calling for migration numbers to be drastically lowered. Like that's something that for a long time was was not something both the major parties would openly call for because it was just at odds with what Australian capitalism wanted in terms of labour. Uh, but now uh, they're openly um, calling for drastic cuts to migration, um, uh, which I think can mean that the racism is kind of harsher and, and, and deeper. Yeah, I and mean, what's really missing from all the discussions of this issue, I think, is a, a socialist defence of refugees and migrants. Like, obviously, there's lots of, you know, smaller liberals who don't like the crass racism of, of some of these policies, uh, who think that refugees should be treated nicer and, and so on. But they usually only really defend migrants and refugees on a capitalist basis with arguments like they're good for the economy, you know, some refugees and migrants are doctors, we need them, multiculturalism built the nation, that sort of thing. But for us, anti-racist arguments, uh, real anti-racist arguments that don't make refugees and migrants right to asylum or to, uh, you know, move countries, 
dependent on how useful they are to the economy or whatever. Um, but those kinds of anti-racist arguments also need to be combined with real working class solutions to the cost of living crisis, to, you know, things like social spending, wage rises and taxing the rich that actually uh, meet some of the anxieties of, uh, of working class people that are being, um, you know, channeled and funneled into this kind of uh, racist scapegoating. Okay, I'm here with Daniel Taylor. Daniel's a Jewish anti-Zionist and socialist and a regular contributor to Red Flag. We wanted Dan on the show because he recently wrote an article called uh, The Mainstream Media Are Pro-Israel Propaganda, which puts it very strongly. And we wanted to talk about how horrendous the media coverage of the Palestine issue has been in the last uh, couple of months and before that. So welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Emma. It's great to be here. So, Daniel, let's start with the right-wing media. In this country, they're mostly run by Rupert Murdoch, obviously. And what's their MO for defending Israel and attacking the Palestinians? Yeah, well, I think the, the Murdoch press here, uh, in their coverage, in many ways, they, they could be said to be to the right of the uh, Israeli government. So, for example, uh, recently, the Israeli military stormed the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza City on the, to my mind, currently unsubstantiated claim that it was a major Hamas uh, terror base. And clearly, while they were storming it and encircling it, that was even less substantiated or, or certainly completely unknown. The Murdoch Press, though, they, they reported on it. The Australian's headline was War on Hamas's Hospital. So th this is, you know, a, a military attack on a hospital uh, that was reported as a, a war on a, 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 a military assault on a terror base. There's no qualification, no ambiguity about it. Uh, similarly, when the Israeli military bombed a refugee camp in Gaza that they'd effectively herded uh, Palestinians into and then blew up, the headline in the Daily Telegraph was a top Hamas terrorist killed in refugee camp. And they put refugee camp in quotation marks. They didn't even acknowledge that it was a, ref a refugee camp. And the only death they acknowledged was of a, a so-called uh, top terrorist. So in that framework, anything in Palestine is a, a terror base. Everyone in Palestine is a, a Hamas operative, you know, hospitals, refugee camps, whatever. They're all just Hamas bases. And the only people that die are uh, uh, Hamas terrorists. And there's pretty much no coverage in it of uh, Palestinian suffering, either either now or in the long term. Uh, if you look through what the Telegraph, the Australian, have published since October 7, it's cheerleading for Israeli military operations uh, and stuff about the purported wave of anti-Semitism that's been unleashed in Australia. And that's their other major strategy, I'd say. that It's a, a racialization of the conflict. So from really early on after October 7, within a day or two, there are loads of articles in the Murdoch press about the, the wave of hatred against Jews in Australia, the Jews are suffering great fear, palpable fear, the Australian uh, put it, um, because of solidarity with the Palestinians. And these articles pretty much, they were supported by quotes from very extreme Zionist political organisations, uh, and that's it. Uh, the Australian... Um, had a, a, an interesting interview with a, an Israeli government propagandist called Mark Regev, who's a, actually uh, Australian. I think he started at Monash before he took up his job with the Israeli government. And he said one of their great achievements, uh, and this is reflected in all the Murdoch coverage, one of their great achievements propaganda-wise of the Israeli government was they've made the foreign media talk about 
the Gazan health ministry as the Hamas health ministry or the Hamas-run health ministry. So that really, that reflects the, the propaganda strategy that the Murdoch press are enthusiastically running with, which is to frame this as everything in Palestine is Hamas uh, and everything, everyone Israel kills, anything Israel blows up, it's all Hamas. There's no real Palestinian suffering um, apart from that. And to the extent that people do have any solidarity with the Palestinians here, it's on the basis of uh, racial hatred against the, the Jews. I think that would be the, the main strategy. Mm. Okay. Um, I mean, these strategies and methods aren't just limited to the ultra right-wing rags, are they? Like both the ABC and, and various liberal outlets like The Guardian have been arguably just as bad in this whole period. So what are some of the examples of, of that that has stuck out to you? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the Guardian in particular is a very interesting case because I'd say they've got a lot of the best coverage as well that's coming out of the mainstream press. They do have a lot of Palestinian voices represented, um, including a, a quite good Gaza diary. Um, and they, they, much more than almost any other English language publication, they do give a sense that there's an atrocity being perpetrated against the Palestinians. Uh, and that reflects, they're, they're sort of the newspaper equivalent of one of these Labour MPs that has lots of Muslims in their electorate. You know, they're a, a progressive, self, self-proclaimed progressive publication based in Britain, even though they've got Australian, you know, an Australian outlet. And in Britain, there's both a, a quite large pro-Palestine broad left and there's a, a huge population with a Muslim background. And that's, you get these enormous pro-Palestine demonstrations in Britain. And so that makes it much harder for a so-called progressive publication to completely ignore what's going on um, in Gaza. Nonetheless, though, they, from that position of having some authority, they really excel at more subtly uh, carrying that propaganda line in ways that are more appropriate to that position. So, for example, they always talk about a war between Israel and Hamas. There's no such thing as Palestine. There's only Hamas. It's a conflict between the nice, neutral, regular state of Israel and this absolutely awful, despicable terrorist organisation, Hamas. And the fact that the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of people that have died in this conflict are are nothing to do with Hamas. They're just people that happen to live in uh, the wrong part of the world while being um, Arabs. Uh, It's totally irrelevant to how the conflict is is being framed there or the genocide is being framed. So they have a particular specialty, though, in the question of anti-Semitism. They've published loads of articles. In, in particular, I remember they published a, an article about the purported wave of uh, anti-Semitism on British university campuses. An, an anonymous article says, you know, no accountability for who claimed this. And it was full of accounts of these awful things happening, some of them actual anti-Semitic racism, and then loads of paragraphs devoted to the awful spectacle of people chanting uh, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, which then devoted some paragraphs to explaining is actually a call for a second Holocaust. So in terms of racialising the conflict and presenting it, uh, Palestine solidarity as a form of even Nazi-like racism, the Guardian's actually pretty uh, extreme on that. And they've they've got form on this. They were a really important part of the... the uh, the campaign to discredit and ultimately bring down the pro-Palestine leadership of the British Labour Party when Jeremy Corbyn uh, was in power there, or not in power, when Jeremy Corbyn was the leader of the British Labour Party. Uh, the Guardian 
played a very important role precisely as a so-called progressive publication uh, in circulating that. And they're doing it again now with Palestine Solidarity Work. They actually sacked one of their very good cartoonists, uh, Steve Bell, one of their best editorial cartoonists, uh, on completely spurious grounds of anti-Semitism over this uh, genocide. The ABC here is one of the worst outlets in the in the world, I think. It's just constant breathless reproduction of Israeli military uh, propaganda. Now, uh, a number of Israelis that were captured by Hamas are being released, and the ABC is desperately seeking atrocity stories about them. Is you know, I'm not saying they weren't mistreated. That may emerge. It's quite uh, possible uh, given the circumstances. But the ABC had this whole article cooked up about how these poor people had to eat bread and rice in captivity, sometimes had to wait some hours before going to the toilet. These are living standards that are clearly better than those of probably 99% of people in Gaza now. But there was such an urge to create a, a narrative of uh, the most terrible atrocities that have been perpetrated against these people that they kind of had to run the article despite not finding any uh, evidence. Sarah Ferguson. Uh, whose you know coverage has been so extreme that the ABC journalists themselves uh, rebelled against it in a, a major meeting of the staff there. Her program, Seven Thirty, has just been for for a whole period, first uh, several weeks of the war, has just been an outlet for Israeli military, Israeli government, and top Israeli politicians from the past to justify all the atrocities that have been carried out, bombing of a refugee camp, storming of hospitals and so on. And her interview questions are along the lines of how is it that the Israeli military expresses such concern for civilian well-being while they're doing this? And when a, one of their guests, notably Ehud Olmert, uh, will you know spin a line that no Palestinian civilians have been killed, everyone in the refugee camp was a terrorist, goes completely unchallenged on the ABC. Uh, the other side of it, though, is they have this really extensive coverage, right? Tens of thousands of words being published probably every day, articles on what seem to be every angle of the conflict. And so you can almost lose sight of all the things they're not covering. You know, where are the extensive investigations into how the Nakba and the dispossession of the Palestinians led to this? Where did this population of Gaza City come from? They actually came from in the main, what is now southern Israel, they were ethnically cleansed out of the villages there. What's the history of Palestinian peaceful civil disobedience and how does it get repressed by the Israelis? What's going on with the settlement invasion of the West Bank? They'll do extensive profiles of, I saw one, of a, a Psytrance music festival organiser and promoter about how this is really bad for the Psytrance industry. Where are the profiles of all the Palestinians that have been killed or imprisoned by the Israelis over this? Where's the in-depth investigation into the anti-war movement that's developed? You know, what's driving it? Who's taking part in it? How does it compare to other social movements? Or even just the fact that the Murdoch press are running a, a pro-genocide propaganda campaign and running articles about how great it is to blow up hospitals and refugee camps. That's a major media story uh, in its own right. You don't see this stuff in the, the coverage that comes from the ABC, The Guardian, the more purportedly progressive outlets. Hmm. Well, yeah, I was wondering about your take on on sort of the culture and what's happening within these media organisations because they obviously present a pretty united front of pro-Israel propaganda. But like you mentioned, there was a sort of mini uprising uh, in the ABC showroom. There Also more recently, there was a, an open letter signed by um, writers and contributors to The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, Schwartz Media and the ABC, basically calling for 
um, better reporting in the, you know, this supposed conflict between Israel and Hamas. So, yeah, what's what's your take on what's happening there? What do journalists think about, you know, the kind of line that they're being told to to trot out? Yeah, they're both really interesting incidents because there's clearly a lot of journalists that, uh, for whatever they may not have necessarily the most radical sentiments, are really pretty genuinely outraged by being asked to be complicit in uh, propaganda for a, for a genocide. So the ABC, there was a meeting of some hundreds of journalists that uh, were putting their complaints to management basically about the editorial line, which they considered rightly to be uh, institutionally biased in favour of Israel. And the the sort of the thread of the argument that they seem to have put, this was actually reported in the, the nine papers, the thread of the argument seemed to be sort of two angles. Number one, they can't say some of the basic truths about what's going on. So words like genocide, apartheid, ethnic cleansing, invasion, occupation, even the word Palestine, uh, they have an editorial hostility or, or even ban on using these words to describe Israeli conduct in these factual terms, you know, apartheid, invasion, occupation, most basic descriptions of what's going on. You can't do it. And in terms of the other, as it were, the other party to the conflict, you can't say Palestine, you have to say uh, Hamas. So this is one uh, one line of argument that was pursued, that, that there's an editorial policy preventing them from saying at the ABC some of the most basic facts of what is happening uh, because they're not favourable to the Israeli establishment, Israeli state. The other thing was the concept of, as they put it, false balance, the idea that every statement that makes the Israelis look bad has to be then balanced with a statement from an Israeli power, an Israeli authority, Israeli propagandist basically, uh, putting their line. And, you know, when there's a, a situation of uh, of an injustice between a powerful party and a relatively powerless one, that presenting that so-called balance actually favours the, uh, the oppressor. And that came up as well in this open letter, uh, which was uh, from a different set of journalists, more broad, not all from just one employer, uh, which was some making some similar points about both the balance, uh, as they put it, both sidesism, uh, you know, always trying to counter, if you have to tell the truth about an Israeli atrocity, trying to counter it with some Israeli propaganda so that you look uh, balanced. The exclusion of important context and stories about uh, Palestinian uh, oppression, that was a major part of that open letter as well. They also called for disclosure around things like journalists being sent on uh, paid junkets uh, to Israel, which is very, very common uh, among the Australian press and not just the, the most right-wing journalists. Crikey actually has a list up today. If, if you look, Crikey has a list up of journalists from Australian publications that have been on these trips, um, illustrated with a, a picture of a few of them literally squirming in the mud uh, by the sea. Um, so, yeah, the open letter reflected as well some some hundreds of journalists that consider that there's an institutional bias in Australian media and the response from the management of the publications. I mean, the, the, the nine outlets, that's Sydney Morning Herald, The Age and those kinds of papers, their response is to say that anyone that signed that letter is now banned from participating in, in coverage of uh, Palestine. So. Anyone who acknowledges that there's a problem of institutional bias is banned from reporting on that question that they think there's bias. So a pretty clear demonstration of the reality of the institutional bias that's coming from uh, the editorial leadership of those publications. 
Yeah, extraordinary. So, well, let's get a little bit further into some of the kind of methods that these various media outlets use. You mentioned before one of the major things is to paint uh, all Palestinians as terrorists and as as Hamas as a way of kind of silencing um, any critics of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians. Um, so, you know, this I think one of the elements of this is not just, you know, referring to Hamas constantly and getting reminding people over and over again of the events of October 7, asking every single person whether they condemn Hamas and that sort of thing. There's also the behind it, this idea that Hamas is a uniquely terrible evil. You know, they're, they're not some just a, a, resist, a resistance organisation or something, but they're uniquely terrible. They, they use human shields. They're genocidal towards the Jews. They just want to do terrorism forever. Um, one thing that really outlined this to me was actually Bernie Sanders in the US, who's a, a terrible Zionist, who said that Hamas is dedicated to turmoil and chaos. I think that kind of encapsulates um, a lot of the media narrative. So, yeah, what do you what do you think is kind of the point behind this narrative? And yeah, can you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, well, I mean, anything Hamas can cook up in their worst, most you know pure evil dreams uh, can't really compare to what the, the Israeli state's been carrying out since 1948. I mean, Hamas have actually not been able to ethnically cleanse anyone. They have orders of magnitude fewer kidnapped hostages than the Israeli state. Uh, the question of human shields, which is clearly always used to justify bombing civilian centres, the Israeli military is just has just been engaging in carpet bombing of one of the most densely populated areas of the planet. And by circulating this narrative of human shields, they can uh, just get a blanket uh, a blanket pass for doing that, at least in their own uh, propaganda. But human shields, I mean, the, that's the practice of the Israeli government in all of their uh, annexations. They fill the, the parts of the world that they want to steal and annex. They fill them with uh, so-called civilian settlers. And then if you resist that process, you're purportedly attacking civilians, and by that process they're able to engage in effectively a, a conquest and an annexation of, of the indigenous land of the Palestinians. So they're, they're masters of all of these uh, strategies, you know, the targeting of civilian infrastructure. There's nothing that Hamas could ever do that's anywhere near as bad as cutting off all of the water to the state of Israel so the children end up, you know, on the edge of dying of pure dehydration. There's, you know, this is not in their remotest capacities to carry out any atrocity uh, on this scale and it relates to it, you know, it gives you two, uh, apart from justifying the Israeli atrocities, it, it, it gives you a couple of other advantages as well. It's part of that process of presenting a, a purported balance between the invading occupying force and their victims. You know, the occupier here, Israel, wants to present themselves as just one of two countries at war, and if anything, the more ethical of the two countries. So in that context, having established that, there's two aggressive forces at war. One of them is religious terrorists. The other is a normal Western-style military. Within that, any concept of balance just leads to justification of the, the conduct of the, the occupier. And so on the ABC, every Palestinian advocate that gets interviewed is getting pelted with accusations that they support terrorism, they support the murder of children, uh, and so on. So it creates this dynamic where journalistic balance means accusing the victims of a genocide of actually being the aggressors uh, in the genocide. And there's a really good example of this on, on Q&A when uh, Nasser Mashni from the uh, Palestine Advocacy Network, he said, I'll, I'll quote what he said, I'll quote Patricia Carvelis' response. 
Nasamashni said, quote, 5,000 Palestinian children have died in 35 days. First of all, let's stop killing kids. To which the response was, quote, some people have accused you of being sympathetic to Hamas. So this is simply one, one person said, let, let, us, let us all agree that it is wrong to kill children. And the response is, you're a Palestinian, don't you support uh, Hamas? Don't you support religiously motivated, racially motivated terrorism? So it's a constant distraction from any discussion of the victimhood of the Palestinians. Mm. Yeah, well, speaking of racialising the conflict, as you said, um, the media have spent a lot of time trying to smear critics of Israel as anti-Semitic. This isn't a new thing. This has been Israel's um, part of Israel's sort of propaganda war for, for decades. Um, but, you know, there, I think that there's a bunch of ways that this has been done in Australia. It's obviously quite hard to smear pro-Palestinian activists as anti-Semitic, given that we're anti-racists. And, you know, that's um, that's a lot of the reason why people, you know, look at what's happening and they can see that the Palestinians are oppressed and so they oppose that. Um, but I've found that one of the ways that the media talk, you know, uh, kind of um, smear critics of Israel in Australia is to just talk endlessly about how terrified Jewish people are here in Australia, like how unsafe people feel. So even when there's not necessarily any evidence of, of actual anti-Semitic attacks or something, there's just they can just repeat ad nauseum um, how unsafe Jewish people feel and kind of thereby, thereby imply that there's all of this anti-Semitic racism in the pro-Palestinian um, camp and at the at the pro-Palestinian rallies and so on. But yeah, how do you think these claims about anti-Semitism are kind of used in Australia in the media uh, to bolster Israel's war? I think that's totally right. I mean, the, the since right after October seven there were articles being published throughout all of the press in Australia about how there are great fears of a wave of anti-Semitic hatred that's going to, you know, un unfold all around us. And they've really just been seeking opportunities to, to reaffirm that and to find anything they can use to, to fit into that narrative. So the you've seen a really extreme example of that in Britain where the, the former Home Secretary uh, described pro-Palestine rallies as, as hate marches. You have a right-wing MP here um, in, in New South Wales, you know, who wanted to ban uh, the pro-Palestine car convoys. Um, and that was just reported in the, the press as a Jewish MP being fearful for the safety of Jews. And so obviously wanting to ban <laughs> pro-Palestine pro activism. Uh, the shifting of the boundaries of what you can and, and can't say about Palestine is, is part of it too. You know, there's the the notion that's been raised a lot in the press that to say Palestine will be free from the river to the sea is calling for a genocide. Um, long live the Intifada uprising resistance of the Palestinians is calling for a genocide. So really anything beyond calling for the status quo oppression of the Palestinians is reinterpreted as a, a form of anti-Semitic anti uh, racism. It's funny, you know, when you go to the demonstrations, they're almost like Holocaust awareness demonstrations. The amount of placards and speeches that are given that are all about, you know, we've got to learn the lessons of the Holocaust, never again, you know, who are the, the modern day, you know, inheritors of the tradition of resistance to genocide, the, the awareness of the Holocaust, taking seriously the Holocaust, the history of uh, anti-Semitic violence is actually one of the, I would say, one of the most pronounced political features of the demonstrations in solidarity with the Palestinians. If you read the, the newspaper coverage, you, you would have the strong impression that 
there's been a sort of a, a pogrom-like atmosphere of anti-Jewish, um, you know, something approaching anti-Jewish violence all throughout the, the Western world. Uh, and, you know, the, the reality is it, it's, it's completely disconnected uh, from reality. Yeah. And meanwhile, there are actual Islamophobic attacks against um, Palestinians and and their supporters, uh, like the firebombing of the um, a burger joint in Melbourne, which happened a little while ago um, against a, a Palestinian man who'd been threatened multiple times with um, firebombings. And this is still somehow, uh, if you read the mainstream media coverage of it, it's still somehow linked to the rising anti-Semitism that's supposedly all around us in Australia. I think it's also of a piece with, you know, they've been over the last few years, last five or ten years, I think there is more discussion in a lot of the Western countries about the need to restrict the right to protest where the protests come up against real priorities of the, the Western capitalist states. So where there have been environmental protests that have involved, you know, civil disobedience, that has raised serious discussions of really cracking down on, on the right to protest. And similarly, the right to even to protest and to speech that goes outside of the bounds of support for the Western imperialist bloc, that's getting reframed now more as anti-Semitism, racism, quasi-terrorism, justification of terrorism, you know, being a Russian agent, all kinds of things that would justify uh, breaking down on it. And I think that's another aspect of those discussions as well. Mm. Maybe just a, a little quick question. I wanted to get your take on this because um, in the last few weeks we've seen really excellent high school walkouts uh, across the country of, of high school students for Palestine. And one of the things that was really notable about that was the mainstream media coverage of it, which was just appalling. Um, you know, we, we'll talk about it elsewhere in this episode, but uh, there was this idea that you know, young people, if they're in high school, their prefrontal cortexes aren't even properly developed. So how can they understand the complex war um, in, in Palestine, you know? Uh, and also, of course, it's uh, there's outside agitators that are making them do this, um, you know, otherwise uh, well-behaved, obedient high schoolers, um, you know, are being, are being uh, yeah, sort of pushed to, to defy their, their principles and so on. What, do you, what did you think about that coverage? Yeah, it would be nice if that uh, standard were applied to the Israeli government and military who are perfectly happy to uh, lock up in administrative detention or even kill uh, large swathes of people uh, well under the age of 18 years uh, old on the grounds of their terrorist activity. But, the you know, it's, it's obviously absurd that this is clearly a wonderful thing. How great is it that these young people have engaged very seriously with an issue that... Uh, you know, the, the propaganda around it is that it's complex and difficult to understand. It's not hard to understand, but it is hard to take a stand on the issue when you're faced with that level of intimidation. They live pretty regimented lives. They, you know, have their things that are all constantly threatened with, you know, throwing their future away and so on if they do anything disruptive while they're studying for their standardised tests and all this stuff. And I think it's one of the one of the loveliest things about this whole anti-war movement. And again, something that if there was a reasonable media in this country, a, a, a reasonable analysis being undertaken of the the protest movement here, you'd expect to see really deep investigation of what is it about young people that is turning them towards what, you know, I've been doing Palestine Solidarity work for a long time and I haven't really seen anything uh, like this from high school students in terms of the, the level of 
active participation in Palestine solidarity in defiance of their institutions and something journalists should be really investigating and instead they're just running article after article about uh, how the education minister says they're not allowed to go, how the educational authorities and the schools say they're not allowed to go, and then most reprehensibly of all about how the Jewish community fears for the safety of, you know, Jewish students if this stuff is allowed to go ahead. I mean, it's it was truly despicable propaganda work done against those kids, but nonetheless they stood up to it and did their uh, did their walkout and made a really big impact actually in that creating that sense that there's you know resistance going on in every part of society and solidarity with the Palestinians. I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. Well, so the entire mainstream media, pretty much as we've talked about, and and even the not so mainstream media in Australia are so bad on this question. I guess if I was wondering what your what your explanation for that is, you know, I think um, a lot of people would be shocked and appalled by just how bad the coverage has been. You know, don't these people care about journalistic integrity, that sort of thing? Why do you think this is sort of wall to wall terrible? It's funny, isn't it? Because it's not it's not really that easy to answer. It's it's more complex than it looks at first. I remember. Uh, when the, the invasion of Iraq happened and there was a similar situation where the media seemed united in broadcasting the most unbelievable lies about it, that question of you know, why they like this, that, that had a really big impact on me. And I, I think there's a similar process happening now with people that are seeing you know, all these respectable institutions that are just doing publicity for a genocide and you know, the, the question does come up, why? Why are they like this? Uh, Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman wrote that book decades ago now, Manufacturing Consent. They made, made a movie of it as well. Uh, and it's interesting to go through their arguments for why the, so, you know, supposedly free press in Western democracies, how it is that they could be so united in doing propaganda for the priorities of Western foreign policy. That's basically what that book's about, Manufacturing Consent. It's, it's mostly about foreign policy uh, propaganda in, in the so-called free press. And a few factors. It's, it's interesting to go through them. One of them was just how big, right, the modern press are, and obviously they're, they're even bigger now, more centralised now. They publish twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. They they get they get coverage out on every incident that happens within a, you know minutes of it happening. They run twenty-four hour rolling live news channels. You know, multiple uh, rolling live news channels. It's a huge undertaking that involves huge centralised resources, and that means to compete on that level and to operate at the, the same propaganda capacity of sheer output, it needs to be a big institution. And that basically means it needs to be a big capitalist or a big state institution to run journalism uh, on that scale. You know, just the sheer scale of output, if you're going to compete, you've got to be one of the major powers of society. Uh, and then they that raises the profit orientation. You know, the capitalists of the private media all have the same interest of making money from their investment. But I don't think that is what accounts for this. Like a lot of these right-wing publications in particular, they lose money for Rupert Murdoch. This is not being done for profit. This is about the political priorities of these particular members of the capitalist class, I think. You know, if you're a, if you're a big capitalist and you own TV stations, news websites, newspapers, you're not just a capitalist, you're also a political activist. I think Kevin Rudd said, no, I don't always quote Kevin Rudd as a political authority, but he said, I, th I think, if I'm remembering right, he said that, well, his way of conceiving of Rupert Murdoch and the Murdoch press is as a, a political faction around the Liberal Party. 
And I think there's some truth to that, actually. These people who run these outlets see themselves, whether they're on the extreme right, like Murdoch or not, they see themselves as people with a role to play in setting the boundaries of political discourse. And if you look at who's running the other private media outlets in Australia, Kerry Stokes, who's, you know, just spent years promoting SAS war criminals, clearly is a major political priority. He wasn't doing that to make money. That was something that he really truly believed in, that it was important to rehabilitate Western imperialism and the war on terror. And Peter Costello runs the nine uh, outlets, that's Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, former Liberal Treasurer, nearly was the Prime Minister. Um, these are not just everyday bourgeois figures, but they're bourgeois figures with a strong interest in politics and a real desire to shape what gets discussed, what ideas get produced, and what ideas get circulated. So they've got all the class interests of a bourgeoisie, and they want to do, don't want to do anything that would disrupt the status quo of Western capitalism. And on top of that, they're willing to take risks, go out there, make arguments to actually strengthen the hand of the, the powers that be, because they're, they're political activists. Then there's the ABC, BBC, state institutions like that. Well, these are outlets that are, they are state institutions. Their directors are appointed out of the government. There's, you know, their editorial policies are set out of, uh, from the top down in that way. And they've got guidelines of balance and objectivity and so on. But that, as Chomsky and Herman pointed out, in those situations of oppression, those principles of so-called balance and even how they conceive of objectivity lead them and demand of them that they favour oppressive powers rather than the oppressed. They did a study of one, uh, it wasn't a state outlet in the US, but it gives you a sense of how that works, uh, the McNeil Era News Hour. Who, who comments on foreign policy in that? Chomsky and Herman's study was 70% government officials, former government officials, right-wing think tanks. That's 70% of their credible sources. So state institutions, you know, how many of their sources are people that are perpetrating genocide or who have a full-time job doing PR for genocide. To, to run the media in the West, you either have to be a big capitalist or a top state official. And so you've got a political interest in setting the boundaries of acceptable discourse, to set the policies, train the journalists, determine what arguments you'll accept about bias. Some of them are on the extreme right, but support for Israel is across the board of the Western ruling class, and that's reflected in their, their journalism. Hmm. Well, let's pivot to talking about Israel and its attitude to propaganda and journalism because obviously so much of what the media are, you know, even in Australia are coming out with is kind of directly from Israeli Defence Force uh, press statements. Um, so we know that their attitude, the attitude of, the, of Israel and the IDF to journalists is that if they are Palestinian or if they're pro-Palestinian, they're basically legitimate military targets. Um, they also think that the only way to report on what's happening in Gaza, the only the only journalists they will kind of accept is those who agree to go on very sanitised, IDF-led tours um, and submit completely to IDF control, like as in the IDF are literally allowed to, you know, delete their photos or um, make changes to what they what they write. So, yeah, I wonder if you could talk about that, you know, Israel's attitude to journalism, what this kind of embedded journalism, as it's called, looks like when it makes it to our newspapers and screens. Yeah, well, the first thing to say, I, I, just as you said, when we're talking about media bias and institutional factors that make it hard to get a real account of what's happening in Gaza, first thing to say is that by, by every account now, the majority of journalists in Gaza are dead. They've been killed by 
by the Israelis in this, just in the current uh, bombardment over the last uh, month and a bit. Um, so that's one of the first ways that they influence the coverage is they, the people that are on the ground that aren't on their payroll have been largely killed uh, through direct military intervention. Uh, the other journalists, there's a place they call the Hill of Shame where they, they line up the journalists. I think it's about two kilometres away from uh, from the, the borders of the Gaza Strip. And all these foreign correspondents line up on there in front of cameras and issue quote-unquote reports from the ground, being totally unable to actually go in and, and see what's going on. They did a, the, the Israeli military did an armoured car tour of Gaza. They piled some of these journalists on a car they drove them around, they drove them back out, and all the time they're lecturing them about IDF propaganda points. And that's it. That's, you know, reporting on the ground from a place that a genocide is happening. So you'd think, again, the, you know, the number one top story in all of the coverage would be the Israeli government is blowing the hell out of this place and they won't let us in to see what's happening. That would be, you know, the screaming headline on every bit of international coverage. Uh, but instead, what you get is a lot of... Israeli press releases. The uh, the bombing of the Al Ali hospital, I think, was a, a really good example of how this works because, you know, this this hospital was uh, there was an explosion by the hospital quite early in the bombing, and immediately, you know, the Israelis had said, "Everyone, get out of Gaza, northern Gaza. We're blowing everything up. Uh, if you're still there, we consider you to be a legitimate target." And then there's a, a bomb goes off by the hospital. So there's a certain presumption that maybe the Israeli military might have had to do with this. Uh, so very, very quickly, the Israeli military put out a very sophisticated little digital package. It was a, a, a tweet <clears throat> with uh, text captions throughout the tweet and all these sort of arrows and rectangles pointing at the direction of this and that uh, projectile saying, well, here's the Islamic Jihad rocket that actually blew up the hospital. This will be the most powerful Islamic Jihad rocket in all of human history. But they got this out, the video out, really quickly, circulated it online, and that has been more or less universally taken up by all of the, the press. So that is now just a fact. The New York Times, it took them a little while, but they put together a package proving that that whole video package was completely false, that what the Israelis had indicated was a rocket that was nowhere near the hospital that couldn't possibly have caused any damage to the hospital. But it was too late. The very sophisticated package had circulated throughout the media. And the Australian, for example, the way they report on it now, I'll quote, Hamas officials, knowing that one of their misfired rockets caused the blast, seized the opportunity to blame Israel for the strike. There's no sense that there's even any debate around this anymore. And it's like that in pretty much, I mean, the Australian is an extreme example. All the press, I think, have been looking for material that can allow them to make this claim. No, not that different to Joe Biden. And the Israelis have a really good machine for producing it. And it's very, very difficult for advocates for the Palestinians. I mean, you imagine what it would be like in Gaza every time something blows up, trying to put together a digital package that you can circulate in English uh, within an hour, uh, even presuming that you had a sympathetic media that were desperately trying to, to take it up. A lot of what we're seeing, a lot of the narrative that we're getting in the mainstream press is coming directly from the Israeli military because journalists aren't able physically to generate their own investigations even if they wanted to. And the Israeli military has constant capacity to churn out, you know, really gripping, high-quality, cutting-edge digital packages that these journalists can just watch and, and write up. It's interesting the IDF have this very, like you said, sort of sophisticated and very outward-facing propaganda. I can't really think of another military in the world that 
devote so much resources to uh, having, you know, English-speaking spokespeople ready to churn out endless content on Twitter and Instagram to try to convince the world that their actions are justified. Um, it's both sophisticated and sort of comically terrible. Like you've, you've said, they've, uh, they've kind of fabricated audio recordings. Um, I think this was about the Al-Ali hospital bombing as well. They actually just made up some audio recordings between supposed Islamic jihad leaders uh, claiming that, you know, they had bombed the hospital by accident. Um, the, the thing recently uh, in the um, Al-Shifa hospital where they found hospital calendars but claimed that these were lists of Hamas fighters, things like that, you know, it's, it's, it's both sophisticated and um, and kind of unsophisticated in some ways. But why do you think they put so much effort into this propaganda war? Well, I think there's a very revealing statement in the Australian's interview and profile of Mark Regev, so the full-time propagandist for the Israeli government. You know, a sympathetic profile for a sympathetic audience. The, the readers, they can speak to fairly openly in some ways because they assume everyone that reads the Murdoch press is going to support, uh, support Israel. And what they said was, and you know, they was based on the, the interview with Mark Regev. They said, "I'm going to quote: Mr. Regev has no compunction admitting it's the U.S. audience he's mostly speaking to with his megaphone, and to a lesser extent, the European and British media. That's why all of Mr. Netanyahu's foreign interviews to date have been with news organisations anchored in the U.S. It's because Israel wants to strengthen American public opinion as much as possible." behind President Joe Biden's support for the Jewish state. Then it quotes Mark Regev saying, we have no better friend in the world. That's why America is the priority. So I think that's pretty revealing in a couple of counts. Firstly, this is not actually a case of the American politicians are frightened of the Israeli lobby that's disciplining them and making them do it. It's actually going the other way. The American politicians have a strong inbuilt interest in supporting the Israeli state as part of the Western imperialist bloc. Then the job of the propagandists and the lobbyists is to help those American politicians, so to discipline their critics and to provide propaganda support for their positions. And that applies to a lesser extent in Australia as well. You have these Western officials, state officials, that are going to help this genocide be carried out. And doing that can create political problems for them. So the Israeli military helped them, you know, in exchange for their military and diplomatic support, the Israeli military helped them by doing political work for them and producing arguments that lessen some of the tension, that strengthen the capacity of their supporters in the media to do propaganda for them and so on. So they clearly, they, they say it as openly as you like, they say we are dependent on the support of Western imperialism to carry on what we're doing. We know that they're going to support us and that that's going to incur them a political cost and so we want to help them politically and that's why we do this propaganda and it's particularly targeted at the United States. Hmm. I think it's also, you know, it's something they've built up over decades and they've kind of spent decades refining the various arguments, um, you know, pushing propaganda, in, not just through the media and press statements, but like through their um the junkets that they provide for, for you know, students and people like that to go to Israel and have a nice time and go and report back about how wonderful it is um, and ignore the question of the oppressed Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, things like that. Um, and it, I've been reading recently about the 1967 war and it's, it's incredible really like just how conscious the Israeli politicians at the time were after they basically you know, illegally snatch the West Bank and Gaza uh, and parts of, um, you know, Syria and Egypt uh, in this war, 
that they're very conscious of like, how do we sell this to the outside world? How do we make sure we have uh, the Americans on side? What are we going to tell them? Let's drip feed them information about what exactly is happening. Let's not say exactly what we're going to do with these, um, these regions that we've taken, you know, leave that an open question. You know, they're very conscious uh, throughout the whole history of Israel's existence, I think, of, like you said, making sure that they have Western support and uh, making sure that those those lovely friends of Israel don't incur the kind of um, political cost of their population revolting against them or, or hating them for what they're, uh, they're doing in supporting Israel. What can we do to counter this constant stream of bullshit that we're getting? I think a lot of people out there, myself included, are endlessly frustrated by it. I feel like I can't watch the mainstream press, honestly. Um, I couldn't bring myself to watch Q&A, even though I thought we might discuss it here and I should probably sit through it. But it's like torture, uh, watching these people just lie through their teeth. You know, it's um, I wouldn't uh, wish it on anyone. So, yeah, what what do you think we can do to counter this? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a tough question. I'm going to contradict maybe the stereotype of the, the boomerish Marxist and say, I actually think now social media is very important. The amount of people I know that, you know, they follow all these Gazans on Instagram and, you know, they'll they'll wake up in the morning and check if they're still alive. I think the social media has made an impact on people's understanding of what's happening there, particularly among young people. I think it's been pretty important. Uh, and I think that's, you know, part of what motivates the Israelis in cutting off the internet fairly frequently. Um, to the places that they're blowing up. You know, there's a long history of people having a, a pretty overblown sense that, oh, well, social media is going to blow this whole thing wide open. Citizen journalism, you know, everyone can post and will reveal the truth. The reality is those social media platforms are still really tightly controlled um, by uh, institutions that are just as tightly linked to the establishment as the traditional press. But it still does make some difference that people can publish and circulate the reality of what's happening around the world um, while, while they can to the extent that they can. But the thing is that that's, that's not going to solve the problem because both sides actually have access to the same social media uh, networks and it remains the case that the, the oppressive powers have more capacity to in influence them. So the social media has been the main format, like I said, for the IDF, the most effective IDF propaganda around the, the bombing of the hospital. There was a, a case of, uh, there was an example that was taken up by a lot of the Australian media, like huge, you know, the, the big drive time radio uh, programs that have these enormous audiences. They were going on and on about Palestinians keeping Jewish children in cages. That came off social media. It was actually a social media post by a, a, a British fascist activist that was just a, you know, classic fake news video, went on social media, got circulated. So social media is, is an aspect of it, but it can't be decisive because it, it still depends on the audience. Is there an audience out there that, that wants to find out what's happening? Is there an audience out there that wants to circulate Israeli propaganda? So you gotta, you got to create the audience as well, and that's part of the importance of activism. I, I genuinely think that at those demonstrations, you know, the, the, the school walkouts, the mass demonstrations with hundreds of thousands of people, People aren't going to learn absolutely everything at those demos and going to the demo assumes that you're already broadly sympathetic. But the slogans that are raised there, you know, the placards that are there, the chants that are there, the speeches that are there, that plays a role as well in creating an audience for a counter-narrative, for the, the real narrative. Then you need institutions that can carry out 
the, the more worked out arguments and the bigger investigations. And that's really hard because we'll always be at a disadvantage there because we're, we're less powerful and uh, less organised than the people that, that run the world. But you need to try to put together the longer articles, the investigative work, the theoretical analysis, the research, the strategic argumentation about the, you know, where the movement should go. Then that leads to the other thing, which is that, you know, ultimately the, the media is not the answer to everything because what, what's happening in Gaza now is not a media war. It's it's an actual genocide. So if you had the best media in the world, you know, and the, and the best pro-Palestine media all around the planet, there would still be a genocide going on. So you also want the circulation of ideas to be connected to the organisation of resistance internationally uh, about what's going on. Yeah, I mean, we also, you know, both of us write for Red Flag and you're on Red Flag Radio. So what do you think is the importance of a, a revolutionary socialist press, you know, something that goes beyond, uh, you know, some sympathy with the Palestinians and showing the truth in Gaza, uh, showing the truth of these um, this oppression and towards actually drawing all the links um, of that to the capitalist system, to imperialism, and to a project of actually building the revolutionary left. Yeah, well, uh, the, the the reality is the better outlets, what are, what are the better mainstream outlets? It's, you know, Al Jazeera, for example, or The Guardian, on you know, from the Western-based journalists. Well, Al, Al Jazeera is ultimately linked to the institutions that play a role in perpetuating the oppression of the Palestinians. That's the, the Middle Eastern ruling classes. It's it's their outlet. Even though it will have good journalism about Palestine when it suits their interests, it's fundamentally attached and run by uh, people that want to maintain the system that has created this outcome. And the same goes for The Guardian and its connections to the, to the British uh, establishment. So we are going to need, if we're, we're going to have not just a press but a movement that can carry through telling the truth and resisting the oppression of the Palestinians to actually liberating the Palestinians. And it has to be, you know, really independent means independent of the ruling class. Uh, and that means socialists. And it means revolutionary socialists because it means that you need a form of socialism that's not based in attaching itself to any of the, the powerful institutions of the, the existing society. So hopefully as, you know, we keep building up our resources, we'll be able to do uh, more and more investigation, more and more analysis, but way more importantly than that, more and more real-life organising of, of resistance to uh, Western imperialism and the, the oppression of the Palestinians. Because those, for the, the socialist press, unlike all those other forms of press that can you know, publish good investigations, for the socialist press, those projects uh, go together. The, the rest of the press, ultimately, their project is connected to, and, and they'll say this, you know, they're, what are they? They're the fourth estate. They're part of the political establishment of, of capitalist uh, civilization. They they have a role in cohering and defending and perfecting capitalist society that that's led us to this point. And the socialist press is the only alternative to that. It, it's a form of press that is about telling the truth, but it's also about building an alternative form of human society where this kind of stuff doesn't doesn't happen. Well, thanks, Daniel. That was an excellent plug for the Red Flag Media Empire, of which this podcast is a small part. Uh, but we also have our excellent newspaper red flag uh, which has had really important coverage of the uh, of the war against Gaza um, and you know has spent a lot of time debunking all of the myths and lies in the mainstream media so please check out that coverage please subscribe to the newspaper uh, and please help us get red flag radio out there as well by sharing um, please like and uh, whatever it's called please rate our podcast highly on whatever platform you use you know spotify and all the others um 
Thanks for joining me, Daniel. The way of the revolution. Right now, with the genocide going on with Gaza, it could not be more clear um, how much we need uh, socialist publications, um, socialist analysis, like what we try to provide here at Red Flag Radio, but also uh, the really excellent coverage um, in Red Flag newspaper. Um, the media around the world, particularly in the Western world, has just been utterly appalling as we've gone through um, this episode. And the small number of journalists with some conscience that have tried to speak out that are from like the major um, you know, uh, news media outlets have been sacked, have been silenced, have been, uh, you know, banned from even editorial or commenting it. So um, if you like what we do um, and you, you know, also want to see more coverage um, uh, from a socialist perspective on, you know, fighting for a free Palestine, really encourage people to subscribe to Red Flag newspaper, um, but also, um, you know, to support us at the podcast. Yeah, and I think it relates to what we talked about earlier in the podcast about the the issue of refugees and migration and this kind of new wave of um, racist hysteria about it. Like, I, I just think a lot of liberals and even, you know, social democrats kind of get this question pretty wrong or they just see it within the framework of, of capitalism, of, of the economy, um, you know, of a kind of multi cultural liberal capitalism. So I think a socialist perspective is really needed and very um, uh, lacking out there, to be honest, even in some of the more left-wing and kind of liberal press. So another reason to support Red Flag, support us here at Red Flag Radio and get a subscription to um, Red Flag newspaper. Yeah, also um, a call out to, you know, please do support us by becoming a Patreon supporter. Um, We could really do with the help. Um, trying to get a, a better setup for our recording. We'd really love a new mic. Um, and, yeah, all of your um, donations uh, really help to, um, you know, get um, that socialist perspective more out there in the world, um, not just uh, so people have better ideas in their heads, but also, you know, to to build a socialist movement um, in this country, both to fight for uh, Palestine but also for refugees and for the rights of migrants um, in this era where we are seeing a real ramping up of racism. Yeah, and we're really proud on this podcast to um, give you, you know, access to like activists and uh, people who are out there fighting the good fight um, and we're going to continue to keep doing that. But donations will definitely help us uh, keep going and expand our operations, expand the uh, red flag media empire. So please do help out. But until next time, we have a world to win. Mm-hmm.